Lord Jesus, we believe here that you only are true life. And that to know you is to live. This world and everything in it, the universe, all the universes that we know and don't even know about yet, were made by you and are sustained by the word of your power every second. We believe it. Nothing comes from nothing. You are the source of everything, both now and forever. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be the source of our understanding right now as we look at a, an amazing passage and a hard passage. Stir our hearts with gratitude to you for what you've done. I pray that we would stand underneath the Bible as an authoritative word from you right now. You said it. We believe it. Help us to feel rightly about it. In your name I ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Then working our way as a church through the first five books of the Bible, who I, which I keep saying are really five chapters of one book. You ever had a, read a book that has parts in it and chapters? So you're chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and then you're in part 2. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and then you're in part 3. Well, it's kind of like that. The Pentateuch is five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they're made up of lots of chapters. And we're in part 2, which is Exodus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone or a pew Bible, you could turn to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. And today we're going to work our way through one of the most important sections of Exodus. And, in fact, one of the most important sections of the whole Bible. I don't say that lightly. The reason that this story is so important is that it provides for us an absolutely crucial foundation for understanding what Jesus did for us on the cross. Why do Christians wear crosses? Why do we sing about the cross? Why do we talk about the blood of this guy who died 2,000 years ago? What does that even mean? That's just weird. If you knew what a cross was, it'd be like hanging an electric chair around your neck. And singing about it, that's morbid, unless you understand the significance of what Jesus did for us. And so Exodus is at the heart of what the, the cross means, what communion means, the Lord's Supper. We're going to end our application today. Our main takeaway is going to be the Lord's Supper. Why do Christians do this bread and cup thing? Stay tuned. It's in Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verses 13 to 16. It's the story most often referred to as the Passover. It's a tale of Israel's redemption from slavery in the land of Egypt. 
And yet this section in Exodus that we're going to be looking at, it's not a very straightforward story that we can just work our way through section by section in neat steps. In fact, I tried for quite a while as I was preparing this week for the sermon to try to figure out how can I just work through this passage in neat steps. And I, I just couldn't do it. Um, and the reason is because the story is, it, it's a bit of a jumbled mix of, of and I don't mean jumbled as chaotic, but it, it's, a, it's a mix of, of narrative, of story, and then commands that Moses is giving to Israel in the present, and commands he's giving them about the future, like when you get to the land after leaving Egypt, they're headed to the promised land. When you get there, this is how, how you're to do it. And then it switches back to story, and then it gives commands, and a story, and command, and you're like, whoa, okay. So, as I was trying to think about um, what, how, to, how, to, how to work us through this, I, I decided I'm just going to move us through the text quickly to just summarize the story. Just a summary of the, the main points of the story that we see. And then, I want to organize the story around four key things that I think the story teaches us about God's salvation. So first, we'll just do this brief summary. Of the story. In our passage today, Yahweh, okay, has, has just finished or is almost finished completely destroying the nation of Egypt. It's a very sobering passage that we looked, about, looked at last week, chapter 7 all the way up to chapter 11. And I'll give you a brief refresher. God created the world in Genesis 1, in the first chapter or the first part of this book the Pentateuch, God created the world in ten speech acts. We believe six, seven days, ten speech acts. And God said, and God said, and God said. So God's ten words brought the creation life. And now God's ten words are going to bring ten plagues of death to Egypt. Why? Well, God has commanded Pharaoh, king over all Egypt, to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Again and again and again. Just like Adam and Eve back in the first part of the story in Genesis chapter 3, just like they broke God's word, so Pharaoh disobeys God's word. And each time Pharaoh refuses to obey the life-giving word of God, the land of Egypt is decreated just a little bit more by God. There's ten plagues total. And these correspond to the ten steps of God creating the world. Here's the point. Disobedience to God's word causes creation to come unglued. Breaking the words that give you life brings death. I've used this illustration a lot of times, maybe familiar by now, but disobeying God's word is like climbing up a tree, climbing out on a limb... So that the limb is like sustaining you, giving you life, and then sawing the limb off. I don't need it anymore. What happens? You fall and you die. Breaking the words that give you life leads to death. And this is what we see in Egypt as Pharaoh breaks God's word again and again and again. Now we left off last week right between plagues 9 and plagues 10. Pharaoh was still refusing to let Israel go. So in our passage today, God sends his tenth and final plague, the destruction of the firstborn sons of all Egyptians and all their animals. Now, the firstborn, it represents the strength of a nation. In fact, 
Pharaoh's firstborn, he would have been viewed as a young god, since Pharaoh himself was actually considered a god. And so God sends his destroying angels, and they go throughout the land in this story and kill the firstborns in Egypt. And wailing fills the night. It's a horrible scene. And Pharaoh drives Israel from his land. Get out. And as the Israelites leave in this story, they ask their Egyptian neighbors for supplies for their journey. And in verse 35 of chapter 12, we read that God actually changed the hearts of the Egyptians so that they were favorably disposed to giving the Israelites whatever they asked for. And so Israel leaves this land that has enslaved them for over 400 years, brutally enslaved them. Israel leaves Egypt with their wagons filled with piles of Egyptian clothing from their neighbors that they were given, and gold and jewelry, possessions they would bring with them on this journey through the wilderness towards the promised land. If you've ever read the book of Exodus and wondered how this nation of slaves got all the gold that they used to make a gold calf to worship, which they were punished for, um, we're getting there, that'll be in a few weeks, or on a more positive note, where they got all the gold that they used to make the tabernacle, where they would worship God, like where's all this gold coming? There's two million people in a desert and... There were slaves for 400 years, and now they have tons of gold. How can they even make it? Well, it came from Egypt. The answer is in verse 35. And so as they leave Egypt, Egypt is both judged and plundered. Israel is saved from her slavery. And yet, as I mentioned last week, and this will keep coming up, Israel was not a righteous nation. This is not a story of the good guys and the bad guys. And God punishes the bad guys and frees the good. No, this is, that's not the story. Israel was worshiping other gods, just like the Egyptians. And so, if God is going to come down in our story in judgment upon Egypt's firstborn, how could he not punish Israel for their evil? How could God save Israel from the punishment of death that they deserved? For breaking his word again and again and again. How could he save them and punish Egypt for their sin and and still be a just judge? Like That's not fair. Why Israel and not Egypt? And the answer is found in the heart of the story. One word. Sacrifice. And that leads us to the second thing I want to do this morning. I want to highlight four things about God's salvation of Israel in this story and show how they apply to us through Jesus' sacrifice. First, in the Bible, all salvation happens through judgment. All salvation happens through judgment. Second, God's salvation requires a redemption price. Third, God's salvation starts a new creation. And fourth and finally, we'll see that God's salvation is to be remembered. So we'll jump right in to point one today. God's salvation happens through judgment. We've already seen this a couple times as we worked through the book of Genesis a few months ago. Do you remember the story? You may remember if you hear the story of Noah. As the judgment of the flood washed the world clean of human evil. Remember the description before the flood came? Every thought of man was only evil continually. 
That is evil. Evil on a scale that we don't even experience nowadays. Okay? Total chaos. And God is grieved and he washes the world clean of human evil. Literally decreating the earth. Bringing it back to Genesis 1 where it's covered with water again. And then bringing forth dry land again as the ark lands, the waters recede. And Noah's like a new Adam coming out of the ark with a new blessing. He makes a sacrifice. God gives him a charge to obey him. And yet we find Noah wasn't perfect either. He was spared because he walked with God. He had a relationship with the creator. And yet later on in the story, Noah sins just like Adam did in Eden. Something is fundamentally wrong with Noah as well. Noah, though, he did find escape from the judgment. Escape. Noah found salvation through judgment by being in a right relationship with the judge. Another important example in the story of the Bible is the destruction of the two cities in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you want to read a story of pure, unadulterated evil, it's Genesis 19. Lot, a relative of Abraham, was living in one of these cities and was barely a righteous man. Like, Lot was righteous by the skin of his teeth. <laughs> he 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 barely had a relationship with the Lord, and yet God was still merciful to him and spared him through the judgment of fire that the destroying band of angels rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, on these two evil cities. And so Lot and his two daughters, they're spared, they're saved through judgment, salvation through judgment. Now, as we continue to think about this first point, I want to reflect on the whole idea of salvation in general. Noah was saved through the judgment of the flood. Lot was saved through the judgment of fire. But have you ever heard someone come home from church, maybe, a church service or or something, and they say that they got saved? I got saved. What did they mean? Like, the building caught on fire, and they were stuck, and then the fire department came, and they were saved. I'm not going to that church. You have to be saved there? Like... What happened? What did you get saved from? No, that's not what we're talking about. But the whole idea of being saved is that you're rescued from something that would bring you harm. And if you're rescued, you might even be given a name that's given to everyone who gets rescued from something truly horrible. You might be called a survivor. For example, imagine, and we don't really have to try hard to imagine, this happened and still happening, a whole town in Syria bombed by ISIS. And imagine only a few civilians are left alive. Just turn on the news and you'll see it, right? What do you call the ones who remain? They're survivors. They're the ones who've escaped death. Or how about this? We were talking about cancer earlier. It strikes you. It ransacks your body. But treatment saves your life. What are you called? You're called a survivor. You might even get a bumper sticker that says, I survived cancer. Or something like that. Salvation. It comes from outside of you. In the form of treatment. In the form of a strong help. And it rescues you from death. 
Now, here's the tragic reality of our human existence. Every one of us, according to the Bible, has cancer. Cancer of the heart. And one day, unless we are saved from it, it will be the death of us. Selfishness is a cancer. Pride, greed, lust, envy, unbelief, laziness, apathy towards God and his words and his kingdom. Carl was sharing about grumbling. What does grumbling say? God, you're in charge of the world and I don't like the way you're ruling it right now. And so I'm going to grumble. Anger. Human sin, we could go on and on. It's like a horrible cancer, twisting and deforming. Essentially, what is sin? This thing Christians always talk about. It's rebellion against God whose words gave us life. We all have it. It's awful. I had to apologize to Holly last night for my sin, for being stupid. (laughs) Right, Holly? I was grumpy. Oh, I'm distressed. Yeah. You're sinful. It's like a horrible cancer. It's stupid. It alienates us from other people and ultimately from God. And it separates us from God further and further till the day that we die physically and we spend eternity apart from Him in the judgment that the Bible calls hell. Hell, according to the Bible, is a judgment that the flood of Noah, that the fire at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the darkness that covered Egypt in the ninth plague, only pictured. Hell, according to the Bible, is the greatest judgment of all judgments. It's decreation going on forever. That's the terrifying picture that the Bible gives us of of life that's cut off from the God of life. It goes on and on. And it's not just for the people that a society deems are like the really bad people. The reality is we're all born with this brokenness because of what Adam did in Genesis 3 in the garden. His sin, our parent, we inherit it. It's like a genetic trait. We inherit a disobedient heart. And as soon as we reach an age where we're able to start cognizantly pressing down against the truth revealed in the world about God and in his word, we're guilty. Nobody's born a lover of the one true God. And so we're all in danger. That means that there's not just like, the world isn't, chopped up into this categories of, of good people and bad people. Like the Christians, they're the religious people, the good, the holy rollers, and, and then they look back down. That, this, that's not the story in Exodus. Keep reading about Israel. They're crazy. Christians are broken people. And people that don't believe in Jesus or don't follow Jesus, they're broken people too. No, when we really look closely at everyone with the lens of the Bible, we'll see that all humans everywhere have sinned and thus stand in need of salvation. 
Judgment is coming from God one day. And we all need a Savior. When the judgment falls, we desperately need to find a way to make it through with our lives. The list of good things that we've done and bad things that we haven't done, it's not going to save us from the wrath of God that's coming against our rebellion. Good deeds, trying harder. These are all the religions of the world are based on this kind of thing. Keep the five pillars of Islam. Recite the Shahadad. Go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Give alms to the poor. No specification of how much. You could just give one thing and feel good for the rest of your life. On and on. All religions are about how we can do good to make God happy with us. The Bible's different. It says there's nothing you can do. You're in trouble. We need a savior. Something from outside of us. Imagine you're snowmobiling on Lake Champlain. A lot of people do it. I don't know if I'd be brave enough. You hit a hole in the ice. Your machine goes through. You go through. It's 10 degrees outside. What do you need in that moment? You know how hard it is to climb onto ice out of water when hypothermia is setting in? It's almost impossible. You need a savior. And you need a savior who's brave enough to come onto the ice where you just went through and pull you out. You can't do it yourself. That's what Christianity says. We desperately need a way to be saved. This message of the wrath and judgment of God is probably the least popular message that the Bible gives our world today. Tolerance, being nice, they're the air we breathe. And so this message is labeled hate speech. It's not popular. And yet, imagine that I visited Carl. And Carl knew that I had cancer. He, he heard my description of what was happening. He saw the test results. And he knows I have cancer. And I don't know it yet. He knows that death is coming. And so Carl told me the bad news. The news that nobody likes to hear. My friend... You have cancer. I would not label Carl as mean or cruel or intolerant for being the bearer of bad news. No. What would I ask Carl in that moment? I'd say, what must I do to be saved? Right? What are my options? Is there a savior? Is there a cure? Is there a new drug I can try? What can I do? And so, the question that the Bible tells us is that we all should be asking this, to, to ask is this, what must I do to be saved? If the Bible is true, it's, not a, it's a zero-sum game, okay, right? If, if the Bible is lying about this, then it's an evil book and you should throw it out. But if the Bible, it's, it's pointless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're wasting your time, right? If the Bible's not true, then it's just a joke. But if it's true, then we need to be asking this question. How can I be saved? Exodus 12. God is saving his people Israel through judgment the tenth plague God sends on Egypt is a plague in which God would go through all the land and strike down the firstborn offspring of every person and animal. The God who gives life takes it away. 
The firstborn son, it's a symbol of the strength of a nation. The firstborn would be the representative of the family unit. The hopes of a family's future greatness all hung on the firstborn. And it was the firstborn who would get the inheritance and carry on the family name. And in the case of Pharaoh, who thought he was divine, his firstborn was considered divine as well. What's the son of a god? A god. And so, when judgment falls on the firstborn, it's judgment upon the whole nation of Egypt together with its system of Pharaoh worship. And yet, like I just said, Israel was a wicked and sinful nation just like Egypt. In Joshua chapter 24, later on in the Bible's story, Joshua is telling these people, put away your idols, the ones that you worshipped back when you were in Egypt. In other words, somehow these false gods keep sneaking into your tents. You're hedging your bets. They're all false. Yahweh alone is the one true God. Worship him and him only. How can, Egypt, how can Israel escape if they're sinful, just like Egypt? And the answer is one word. Sacrifice. Israel will only make it through the coming judgment by placing their faith in the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. If you have a Bible open, you can look now. I'm going to really read a big chunk of the text now. Exodus 12, verses 3 to 13. Exodus 12, verses 3 to 13. Here God says to Moses and Aaron, Tell the whole community of Israel that the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now let's pause for a second. Later on in chapter 12, verse 22, we read that the, hip, the Israelites are to paint the blood on these doorposts using a cluster of herbs called hyssop. The leaves of hyssop back then were commonly used for, for purification, for cleansing. This is symbolic here. The blood is purifying this house where the Israelites live in some way. Now verse 8. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and organs. And do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. In other words, this meal is supposed to be a one-and-done meal, just as the sacrifice made is a one-and-done sacrifice. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, there's three things that I'd like to point out about these verses that are really important for understanding what's going on. First, this Hebrew word that you often hear translated Passover, 
The Jews still celebrate Passover today. Um, it's actually an English gloss for a Hebrew word that we really can only understand in the context of this story. In other words, when we see this Hebrew word, Pesach, we're really not sure what it means in and of itself. It's not super common. But as we read the story, we say, well, as God comes in judgment and sees the blood, it's like he Pesach over the Israel. He passes over the Israelite homes. That's, that's kind of how we've understood it in the past. Like the feast of Passover, God's passing over these Israelite homes. But lately, there's actually been some good cases made by Bible scholars for a retranslation of this word Passover to mean something like cover over, like a bird when there's a fire, will cover over her young with her wings. As the fire burns all around, she covers over to save them from death. Or more simply, just protection. Pasach. When you pasach something, you protect it. In other words, every time you read the word Passover, you can think in your head, protection. God himself is protecting the people from his own judgment. At least the second thing about Passover or protection. In the story, there's a destroyer who carries out the actual judgment on Yahweh's behalf, on the Lord's behalf. So while it's the Lord who literally protects Israel, um, these verses tell and while these verses tell us that it's the Lord who's bringing the judgment and doing the striking, the Lord does this striking, this, this judgment, through an agent or agents of death that are called a destroyer. If you look in chapter 12 at verse 23, I'll read that. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over or protect that doorway cover over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down the author of psalm 78 clearly reads the passage this way too in psalm 78 verse 49 he says the psalmist says that god destroyed egypt through the agency of a band of destroying angels or disaster bringing angels so that, if you might remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's actually how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah years before. The angels that were there representing the Lord brought down the judgment. That's how Jesus says he will come in judgment one day with his angels in Matthew 16, verse 27. And this brings us to the third essential thing to see here. Yahweh, the Lord, protects his people from the destroyer through the death of a lamb. So as the judgment that God has decreed falls, and as the destroying band of angels, or angel, the destroyer, is moving throughout this land, striking down firstborns all over Egypt, Yahweh himself stands in the way of his own judgment. Picture this. The destroyer is coming, and Yahweh stands in the middle, underneath his own judgment, and he covers over, he protects the house that has the blood. If the blood covered your door, then Yahweh himself covers your house. It's as if Yahweh identifies himself with the lamb's blood. Why would he do that? Because one day, 
Yahweh's firstborn son. Himself, Yahweh. What's the son of Yahweh? Yahweh. What's the son of a God? A God. Yahweh's son comes as a human to earth to die and to save all who trust in his blood from their own eternal judgment. That little lamb years ago couldn't actually cover over the people's sin. But faith in the lamb was ultimately faith in Yahweh who would one day save through his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross, Jesus died as our Passover lamb. He paid the price for the sins of everyone everywhere who trusts in Yahweh to save them from the judgment they deserve for breaking God's word, both now and forever. Christ, our Passover lamb, as Christians, we believe he has been sacrificed. He is the payment for our redemption. He is the way that we can be saved through the judgment of God. That leads to the second thing that we'll see this morning about the Passover story. God's salvation, it requires a redemption price. We've seen that God saves his people through judgment, and we've talked about how he does that. He does that through the death of a firstborn lamb, pointing to the day when Jesus would take away our sins and take God's judgment in our place. But now I want to talk about this concept of redemption that starts in this story. If you want to look at Exodus with me, you can look at verses 1 to 16 of chapter 13, and I'm just going to read some of them. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So this is like in the future. After you leave Egypt, every firstborn male ever born, human or animal, belongs to me. Verse 11. After Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Like, I was born and you're killing a donkey, or killing a lamb. What does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. This is a little tricky here. What is going on? And I want to talk about three things related to these verses. First, salvation is a redemption. In the Bible, this word redemption, like we have a redemption center down the road. It's it's getting back something that belongs to you. In, In the Bible, it's a word that means to buy back someone or something from someone else. So that this person or thing belongs to you again. You redeem it. In the context of Exodus, redemption is where God buys back his people from slavery. In the Exodus event, God redeemed his people. He set them free from slavery to Pharaoh, and he saved them through judgment, right? We've just seen that. Redeeming them from slavery with a price. The price for the redemption in the Exodus was the blood of a lamb. 
And once that firstborn lamb's blood had been shed, the price for Israel's rescue had been paid. Judgment would not fall on their firstborn sons, and they as a nation would be set free from Egypt. But this leads to the second thing to see. They belong now, Israel belongs now to the one who bought them, who redeemed them. God redeemed them from slavery. He bought them. He bound them to himself. They belong to him. As he says over and over as in the Exodus story, they are now his precious possession. They are possessed by God. And so in chapter 13, we just read about this. In the days following the Exodus, God told Moses that all the firstborn animals of Israel and all the firstborn sons of Israel, they symbolically, they belong to God. And remember, as the firstborns, they represent the nation. These firstborns belong to God of animal and beast because the whole nation and everything that belongs to it is God's. He rescued them. He bought them. He made them. He saved them. He owns them. Their lives belong to him. And that leads to the third thing to see here in verses chapter 13. All firstborns of Israel had to be redeemed when they were born. And so God told them, Israel, that they had to sacrifice all their firstborn animals to the Lord from now on. And if they'd like to keep a larger animal, like, for example, a firstborn donkey, they had to buy it back from God, redeem it with the sacrifice of a lamb. The same was true for their firstborn sons. In other words, every time a firstborn of Israel was born, God wanted his people to think, this child belongs to God. This firstborn child, it represents me and the fact that I belong to God. Remember, again, that the firstborn son, he represents the nation. So God even calls the whole nation of Israel back in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. He calls the whole nation his firstborn son. They're his son. And so for Israel to recognize that their firstborn sons belong to God, it's a constant reminder of their own rescue, their own belonging to God, that they themselves owe their very existence, their life, to God. He had spared their firstborns from death through a lamb. And so if future firstborns were to keep their lives, and if the people that they represented were to keep on living and not die, there had to be a redemption price. There had to be a sacrifice. Something's got to die in their place to atone for their sins. Slavery to sin requires a redemption price. And this points to the need for all humans everywhere to be redeemed from slavery to sin and death and hell. We have all sinned against God. We've all become rebels to his rule and we owe our lives to him as forfeit. We deserve to die. We believe that. Why does everybody die? God didn't make the world this way. It's because we broke his word And if we are to be rescued, we must be redeemed. And Christian, if you know Jesus today, we believe we are the ones who have been redeemed. God himself has paid the price for our redemption. As Peter, the apostle who was redeemed himself, wrote in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, For you know... That it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. What's that empty way of life? Slavery to sin. You You were redeemed, not with a purchase of money, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, 
without blemish or defect. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The firstborn son of God has been sacrificed so that we can live. The redemption of the exodus that we're reading about, it culminates, culminates in its, its pinnacle is the redemption that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And now, one other thing to see about our salvation here. A third thing is that God's salvation starts a new creation. That should be extra special to us as new creation church, right? We're all about new creation here. We've been redeemed. We've been made new. We're not slaves anymore, but we belong to God. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. There the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. What month is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the month of Nisan, the month of the Exodus. It's like March, April in the Jewish calendar, the springtime. And as God gets ready to save Israel from slavery to Egypt and to redeem Israel's firstborns from death, he he literally tells them that from now on, their yearly calendar is supposed to be reoriented around their salvation. In other words, their, their salvation from now on, it marks the beginning of their year, of a new year, a new age. Their national calendars are to start with their rescue. Time itself has been changed for Israel now that they're saved. It's like a new creation has begun. And when Israel would celebrate the Passover in future years, they literally, they kicked off each year with remembering their redemption And sadly, according to the Bible's records, they rarely did it. But it was supposed to be a way, the way, to reorient their entire lives around God's salvation. And next week, Brian will talk about this a lot more, about this theme of new creation. So I'm not going to dwell here on other things in the text that point to this. But I want to say that we as Christians, we are doing a very similar thing today as we assemble to worship Jesus Christ on a Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday, accomplishing his great exodus work as a new Moses, setting his people free from captivity to slavery and sin, paying the redemption price, protecting, covering over them from the judgment of God that they deserve. Jesus leads a new exodus and he he rose from the dead on a Sunday, proving that God accepted his sacrifice. He's the real deal. He didn't make it all up. He's alive, and he ascended a throne. And so we come to worship Jesus on Sundays. It's our new creation day. It's the day that we celebrate our own exodus and rescue from slavery to sin. It's the day that we reorient our entire lives around our salvation, and we sing about our redemption, like the Israelites are going to sing, we'll see in Exodus 15. Then we eat and we drink in remembrance of the Lamb who covered over our sin and paid the redemption price for our freedom. That's why we're here today on a Sunday and not a Tuesday or any other time. That leads us right into the fourth and final point this morning. God's salvation is to be remembered. As you probably have noticed, we're skipping a lot of details in our passage this morning. That's intentional. But if you get a chance, I do encourage you to read through it this week. Think about it some more. But I just want you to get the big picture of what this passage teaches about God's salvation. And this final point is essential. And it has direct application 
to our lives and to what we do here around the Lord's table. Salvation must be remembered. Remembering our salvation, remembering what God has done for us, it fuels our faith in God's promises to us, both in the present and in the future. Israel was to celebrate the Passover every year to help them remember their redemption. And the reason was because if we don't remember, if we don't fight to remember, we're prone to forget what God has done for us. And then our faith starts to shrivel. Again and again, we see this theme pop up in Israel's history. They forgot the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, they rarely celebrated the Passover. I think we only have seven mentions of it in the Bible. Like, we're reading Exodus. This is supposed to be like the biggest thing of the year for Israel. And they only celebrate it seven times that we know of. That wasn't God's design. I'll close as we close with the words of Exodus 12, verses um, 20, 25 and 20 to 27. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover or protection sacrifice to the Lord who covered over or protected the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And friends, now that Jesus has come, we have a new ceremony that he gave us to help us and to help our children who are watching us remember what, how God has once and for all time protected his own people from his own judgment against our sins. Only he can save And so this ceremony is our observance of that. It's called the Lord's Supper. We don't kill a spotless lamb and celebrate to celebrate our exodus from sin anymore. No, the lamb was already killed for us. Jesus, the perfect and holy lamb of God. He's died in our place. No more lambs are needed. No more lambs need to die. But we do eat. We eat and remember We remember what God has done for us in our redemption. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he has transformed the ancient ceremony of Passover into a meal that's all about him. And so now, I would like us to go to the table together and we'll have communion. Usually someone else comes up and and does it, but because it fits so perfectly with this passage today, uh, I told Brian, I think I'll do the transition and uh, I want to I read these words from the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 17. You can look there if you'd like in your Bible. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, 
The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' reference to himself, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Where will he go? He'll go to the cross, just as it was written back in Exodus and all through the Old Testament. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, so they're eating the Passover meal, the one that Israel's supposed to celebrate, right? And, and Jesus takes the bread, the unleavened bread in the meal. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As I already said, what Jesus is doing here, as he and his disciples are celebrating this ancient tradition of Passover, the feast of God's protection, Jesus is making it all about himself. Like, how does he have the authority to do that? He's God. He's God. He's making it about himself. It ultimately was about him, remember? Yahweh identified with the blood of the Lamb. Yahweh said, I'm protecting you, like this blood is. Now, I know that there are many um, Christian brothers and sisters all over the world who find the Passover meal and the way it's celebrated even now in, in modern Judaism fascinating and enjoy celebrating it each year in like a, a Seder meal. Have you ever heard of a Seder meal before? Have you ever been a part of one? It's kind of cool like to, to see what they, they do and they, they remember. I think Adamsville is actually thinking of hosting one, our sending church, um, soon. And there's nothing wrong with Christians celebrating a, a Seder meal. But... Um, I do, I do want to say that, yeah, it might be, it might be cool and, and stuff to remember, but the lambs that we eat there, just remember, no, no more lamb needs to die for sin, ever. Jesus has died. The lamb of God has died. He has provided purification for sins once for all. And so now, we're not people of the Seder. We are people of the bread and the cup. And so I am going to invite you as Carl, um, would you come up and help? And Brian, would you come up and help us? Um, Carl and Brian are going to be passing out the bread and the cup today. And, and I, I invite you, if you um, believe that Jesus is your only hope for forgiveness from sin and life with God, then this meal is for you, if you believe that. In Exodus 12 and 13, we actually learn that no foreigners were allowed to eat the Passover. Only Israelites who'd received the covenant sign and foreigners who'd received the covenant sign. So you could, as long as you had become a true Israelite. And in the same way, this meal is only for those who are under the covenant of Jesus' blood by faith. That's anybody who trusts in Jesus. As it goes out, just uh, we'll have a moment of silence. And just reflect on what the Lord has done for you.
Carl, would you would you thank the Lord here for us for the bread and the cup? Lord, just come to you. We just thank you, praise your name. We thank you that uh, you were broken, that you were uh, for our sins, that you were pierced for us, and that your shed blood on the cross has covered us just like uh, the Passover lamb did, Lord, that you blood of the unblemished land was seen that the death angel went over and did not uh, um, uh, take the life of the, the Israelites in the same way Lord because of what you've done for us on the cross once and for all that your body was broken and pierced and, and your blood that shed covers our sins we praise your name for that so that we can live victorious over sin and over death and uh, that we one day can be with you and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Thanks, brother. So as they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus takes the bread and he says, this bread is my body. It represents my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And then Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks for it, he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See and drink. 